0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box this Friday morning. we got a big number out of China. GDP for the first quarter falling 6.8% that is the first contraction for the economy in nearly three decades as domestic demand and production grind to a halt due to coronavirus
1: but hopes of a cure send us futures sharply higher as a trial suggests COVID patients are responding well to an experimental drug by Gilead sciences boosting that stock as much as 16 percent in extended trade Equities also get a lift from President Trump's three-point plan to reopen America, but US bond yields fall for a third straight session as jobless claims underscore the deep downturn. LVMH and L'Oreal Bank on a to bounce back in China after sales for the Louis Vuitton parent plunged 17% in the first quarter and the cosmetics giant suffers amid widespread lockdowns. We're going to be speaking to L'Oreal's CEO later on today. And French President Emmanuel Macron says Europe could disintegrate. Warning the future of the bloc depends on solidarity over financial support, including a collective debt solution. china's economy shrank by almost seven percent in the first quarter that was worse than expected all this after the country introduced sweeping containment measures to halt the spread of the coronavirus outbreak. It marked the first decline since records began in 1992. Now, Retail sales for March they slumped by double digits, nearly 16%, as many shops and restaurants closed down and consumers stayed at home. Fixed asset investment for the month fell by more than estimated, dropping by 16.1%. Industrial output also dipped by more than 1%. But that number was a beat of expectations. Let's get out to Sherry for more. Sherry, putting new entries now into the record books. And Just give us a sense of how bad the numbers were and what we can expect down the
2: track. I mean you are talking about how this is the very first drop in Chinese uh, you know quarterly uh, GDP growth in well since 1992 ever since this recording or this release of quarterly GDP began and uh, that's really uh, you know the grim picture that we're getting and that drop off is very much powerful visualization of what's been happening or not happening enough of in the Chinese economy in the first quarter of this year. And of course, the monthly indicators for the month of March also showing how economic pain is easing, but not uh, quite to the level that we would have hoped, or at least what economists, many economists in a Reuters poll, were expecting as well. Industrial output was the only factor that beat market expectations, but when it comes to retail sales as well as it, you, know, uh, you know the investment figures, they actually uh, missed expectations and still showing some you know big slump. Across across. across the board. In the meantime, you know, it's really interesting how all this sets us up to what we are expecting to happen on Monday the PBOC the Central Bank of China is expected to announce its decision on loan prime rate and this is yet another area where they can sort of tinker with the interest rate in order to inject more liquidity into the system a lot of talk about what kind of stimulus measures this kind of grim uh, economic data uh, you know is going to bring or cause of Chinese authorities to introduce. A lot of uh, you know, economists and investors or analysts are expecting more of a targeted, still targeted, something very different from the U.S. Federal Reserve. ANZ, ANZ for one, exam- is talking about how it's going to be targeted for boosting employment as well as a long-term productivity. China Renaissance, for example, is talking about tax reductions or exemptions and more of a fiscal side of things instead of monetary stimulus. Karen,
1: back to you. Uh, Sherry, thank you very much. Now Jeff and Steve also on the line today. and I, I wonder whether we'll ever see numbers like this again in our lifetime out of China. Certainly an extreme downturn. But I thought the market interpretation was fascinating that this was possibly good news that the, the steep downturn was so bad because Chinese authorities will step in and what we've seen this time around, the response to the crisis so far, nowhere near the amount of stimulus poured into the economy like we had back in 2008. Almost 14% of GDP P. authorities a little bit reluctant, thinking that this crisis is different, Jeff.
0: Oh, uh, Karen, you said, um, you know, remarkable, we, we get this number. Uh, it's the worst ever and so on and so Wait. Let's wait and see what the second quarter GDP number looks like here, because there is no magic money tree. The big secret that I don't think uh, the Chinese have wanted to talk about for a long time is that Chinese household debt looks similar to what we see in the United States and similar to what we see in Japan. And the problem with these big lending programs and a cut in the prime lending rate and so forth is that that's a very blunt tool. Now, I take on board... uh, Uh, Sherry Kang's comments there about more targeted measures, but they're going to have to be incredibly targeted and it's going to have to operate at the local level and you're going to have to tempt Chinese consumers who will have... uh, been hurt by this uh, coronavirus lockdown to suddenly go out and replace their cars. We might see some cash for clunkers schemes at a local level. We might see some other local initiatives like VAT cuts and so on and so forth. But will they genuinely encourage consumers to spend? Because I think the big revelation in these numbers, as we look across the data as a whole, Karen, is just how much weakness we see in the domestic recovery coming out of of this There is no V-shape when you look at retail spending, and perhaps we should read across from that and look at what that tells us about how Western economies are going to evolve from here. And the other reason I think the data only gets worse is... Where are they looking for improvements? Okay, production numbers have recovered, but will they see a strong rebound given that all of the markets that they sell these products into, the developed West, have been in lockdown and will continue to be in lockdown for a little while to come yet? So are we genuinely going to see a significant rebound in exports at this point? I find it hard to see that. Steve?
3: Uh, All of the above, um, Karen and Jeff. But I've looked back at history, and and I think it's very apt that you've talked about the consumer uh, and private spending and private initiatives. But actually, it's quite apt that I'm here today. And basically, I'm at HS2. We'll talk about that a little bit later on, which is Europe's largest infrastructure project, which got signed off this week. And I'm here to basically talk about how the economic recovery starts. So I think it's very apt we're talking about how the economic recovery starts in China as well. So we look back at the playbook historically, and we can look back uh, at at, uh, Fukushima 2011, March 2011. Devastating events there as well. We can look back at world wars. We can look back at depressions. And you can look back at what Mussolini did, dare I say what Hitler did, what FDR did, what happened in 1948 with the Marshall Plan. There is always a state-led response, as well as, of course, trying to encourage private individuals to spend. The state-led response is about infrastructure. Now, that's not going to affect the second quarter data. It's not going to affect the third or fourth quarter. But we do know that these behemoth projects create thousands of jobs, create huge amounts of revenues, and potentially create economic growth. Now, as you say as well, Jeff, with the private consumer creating vast amounts of debt, this creates huge amounts of public and sovereign debt as well. And with that, of course, uh, concerns about debt to GDPs, concerns about deficits, but it is a a well-tried and tested path forward as well. And of course, if we're talking specifically about China, They already have a very large infrastructure project. They already have a global infrastructure project. It's called One Belt and Road. And I would imagine on the back of this that activity on that and creating activity that feeds into China and feeds from the Chinese economy will be ramped up somewhat
1: into the okay. role of infrastructure this time round in uh, any recovery efforts versus uh, the consumption side with our guest in just a few minutes. But in the meantime let's just recap on some of that U.S. data. More than 5.2 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits last week. The total was slightly worse than expected but it does represent a drop from the previous two weeks as the virus and stay-at-home measures continue to impact the U.S. labour market. In total around 22 million people have filed claims since the the pandemic hit, meaning that almost all the jobs created since the last financial crisis have been lost in the last month. The latest dismal data point uh, weighed on bond markets with U.S. Treasury yields falling for three straight sessions. Uh, this is how we're shaping up on the boards this morning. Take a look straight at that 10 and you can see 0. 0.65, roughly the level we we're watching. Uh, still above the lows that we had in March, but uh, it is tracking off some of the more recent highs as well. Meantime, US President Donald Trump has unveiled a three-point plan to exit the coronavirus lockdown. The American leader said the decision on when to reopen rests with individual state authorities, not the federal government. Under the new guidelines, states will be asked to show a downward trajectory in confirmed coronavirus cases for at least 14 days before gradually easing restrictions on businesses and schools. But White House officials are warning that strict hygiene and social distancing measures should remain even while other restrictions are lifted. Speaking on CNBC's Box in the US, BlackRock co-founder and CEO Larry Fink said he doesn't believe the American public will feel completely safe with easing the lockdown measures until at least later in the summer.
4: I do believe we're going to be able to reboot. I do believe we're going to have, uh, uh, you know, a, a better uh, more normalized environment, but it may not be in June or July. It may be in August. Um, and, and so the economies, it will be slow to really reboot, as you said, because we're such a heavy server side economy. The most important thing, we need to have all Americans feeling comfortable, feeling safe. And at this time, I, I don't believe that, that many people feel secure and safe.
1: Daniel Lakai joins us, Chief Economist at Tressy's guest here. Now, Daniel, we want to get into you in on the stimulus because what we've seen from the market interpretation around China today, very weak data, it's going to force the hand of Chinese authorities to do more. But you're warning in, in a note you've penned recently, very grim, that the stimulus simply doesn't work this time and that it could sow the seeds for a massive deflationary spiral. Set the scene for us. Why you think that could be the case?
4: Yes, uh, good morning. Uh, the main reason is because uh, policymakers are tackling this crisis uh, in the way uh, as if this was similar to the 2008 crisis. So they're trying to incentivize demand with massive injections of liquidity and massive uh, credit options for SMEs and for uh, companies. However, the problem here is not a problem of demand or demand for credit. The problem here is a shutdown of the economy by decree, by, by law. And therefore... What you're what you're doing is that the little demand that you will be incentivizing is actually the one that was already in overcapacity, very typical of, uh, uh, you know, in sectors that already had access to credit. And the second is that the companies that are falling, the companies that are laying off workers right now, were companies and businesses that did not have access to credit and are not having access to credit right now because what they're facing is zero sales. So you basically um, generate a massive level of liquidity and a massive increase in debt that does not transfer into the real economy, generating a deflationary spiral
1: daniel we've been having debate in the last few weeks about who you save. clearly some sectors have been hit much harder than others travel leisure hospitality but you've also got companies that were well positioned coming into this crisis good cash on balance sheet and some of them owned by very wealthy founders there's been pushback about these particular companies accessing government assistance even though they're also facing the hit with rental payments due no business and still workers on salary who do you think should be saved in this crisis? Should it be everyone at this stage?
4: Well, I, I, the, I, the difference here is the, the concept of saving. I think that there is absolutely a, a need for governments to provide liquidity with no recourse to some of the companies that are facing the shutdown of the economy by decree and that are facing the zero sales. That is fine. I think that the risk here is that the, the governments decide to bail out and recapitalize sectors that already had massive overcapacity. And that is, um, we need to therefore detach as much as possible the liquidity injections from uh, direct government decisions. So that's why the transmission mechanism of these measures needs to be uh, as open and as wide as possible. Uh, in, it's essential here that uh, what we don't uh, find ourselves in is in, in a situation in which, uh, by bailing out uh, sectors, that we're already. Uh, let's say, for example, the auto sector, the, uh, aeropla- the uh, and automotive sectors the uh, sectors that had very large levels of overcapacity in the past. If we bail out those sectors, we're going to have a much larger problem uh, going down the line. So what we need to do is provide liquidity, absolutely. Provide liquidity with no recourse. But what you cannot do is to in- start to sort of, create an even bigger moral hazard by bailing out the sectors that were already in trouble in 2018 and uh, leaving behind the sectors that actually were doing well, as you were very well saying.
0: Dan, I want to bring you to the here and now. So the markets yesterday were very encouraged by the uh, Gilead Sciences news that this uh, remdesivir is showing some kind of positive signs on treating patients with COVID-19. That is very encouraging. If we can go down the road now of developing this into a full-blown treatment, ready out of the box to start giving to patients, how long does it then take, do you think, one, to get uh, American workers back into jobs, and two, to see the kind of employment levels that we had before this crisis began? Mm-hmm.
4: I think that on one side, it's, we need to give science uh, its time. Uh, markets and uh, timing and, and science timing are not the same. And I think that it's important that any treatment or vaccine is well tested and is, and is a solid one because as so many doctors always say, there's nothing worse than a bad virus and it's only a bad vaccine. Um, so I think that the even if we had very good uh, results and very encouraging results, and I'm very, very happy to know about that, uh, we would have to start thinking about end of 2020, beginning of 2021, for, uh, for something that is actually uh, available uh, to American workers or to uh, Europeans or developed markets. But, it, but the problem is going to continue in emerging markets. So what I would say is uh, the jobs market in the United States can recover extremely quickly. Uh, in, a, in my estimates, what we think is that the loss of one month can recover between one and three months. The big problem is in the Eurozone. The, the lo- job losses of one month tend to be recovered between 7 to 12 months. And in that uh, situation, added to the very large levels of, of, of massive uh, imbalances that economies are reaching, it's going to be quite, quite more difficult. So uh, what I would say is that the U.S. can recover quite quickly, but we need to give a little bit more time than maybe the end of this year in order to believe that this can be fully functional and available for American workers safely.
1: Daniel, very much appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for the time. Daniel Lakai with us, Chief Economist at Tresses Guestian. Our colleague stateside will be speaking exclusively to New York Fed President John Williams later today. Make sure you tune in for that interview at 1430 CET. Coming up on the show, a potential breakthrough in the fight against COVID-19 as a U.S. drug trial reportedly shows encouraging results. We'll break down the latest development and a race to find a cure. Meantime, we'll leave you with a look at U.S. futures, which got a big boost from that news. You can see it rallying very strongly into the green, 750-odd points on the Dow. We've been witnessing on markets uh, a lot of change in sentiment in recent weeks in the back of coronavirus. And we seem to have entered the new phase of bad news is good news for markets. Because what we had out of China today, very weak GDP numbers, and we saw the first fall in record for the economy. The extent of it, a contraction of 6.8% in the quarter year on year. But look at the green on the boards. Uh, investors at this stage responding to expectations that the data is so bad that the Chinese authorities will have to step in with even more efforts to try and shore up the economy. So we've got a 1% rally on the Chinese stock market, even stronger gains uh, with the risk sentiment uh, carrying across to the Australian market, bouncing 1.3%. Hong Kong up almost 500 points or more than 2%. And very strong, as you can see, for that Japanese stock market, the size of the gains 600 plus points or more than 3%. Let's take a look at that US market action as well. We did see uh, some of the green following through from Wall Street, but it was curious. We had modest levels, very slim trading ranges, and the uh, finish on this uh, US market of just over a tenth of a percent, highly unusual with the extent of the swings we've seen in recent weeks, either to the upside or the downside. So just worth noting uh, that settlement at just 33 points on the Dow. But over the course of this week, so let's just take stock of how we have traded so far. For the week, we're down about uh, roughly three quarters one percent on the Dow. So also slim moves for the course of the week. So markets at this stage are trying to find a foothold. And it seems as though what we are seeing on futures this morning, the market will look towards what they hope is some good news. It does feel like it's very early days, but news out of Gilead, sciences about potential treatment for COVID-19. That's put a, a trigger into the risk appetite for the markets. And we were seeing green splash up on those US futures. Very strong trade uh, on Dow futures uh, so far, 780 points currently. So it is indicating uh, that investors will bounce back despite the data they've got to weather out of China. And also we had those initial jobless claims yesterday showing the extent of the damage for the unemployment sector in the states, another 5.2 million seeking benefits. Well, let's get to that story around Gilead, as the company's shares jumped more than 16% in extended trade following a report that one of the company's drugs is showing promising results in treating COVID-19 patients. There is currently no proven therapies to treat the pandemic. Juliana has been looking into the latest. Juliana, this is only some data from a clinical trial, one part of that clinical trial, which means it's very incomplete at this stage. Is the market getting ahead of itself?
5: Good morning, Karen. Well, absolutely. I think the crucial message here is this is some very encouraging news, but it is anecdotal. Now, what we're talking about here is Gilead's experimental drug remdesivir. This is one of the earliest medicines identified as having potential to treat COVID-19. It was a drug that was developed and shown promise to treat SARS and MERS, other kinds of coronaviruses. And yesterday, Stat News reported that partial data from an ongoing phase three trial of the drug Drug showed that patients with severe COVID 19 are seeing rapid recoveries in fever and respiratory symptoms. And nearly all of the patients treated with the drug were discharged from hospital in less than a week. So, absolutely, this is exciting and encouraging data. But this data was leaked in a video among internal faculty members at the University of Chicago, one of the sites that's trialing the drug. It is by no means incomplete com- data, it is real time insights into what they're seeing in patients. It's not controlled clinical trial data. And Gilead came out responding to this report in a statement to Reuters saying the totality of the data need to be analyzed in order to draw any conclusions. And the University of Chicago Medical Center also echoed this point saying that by definition, any ongoing trial data is incomplete. But This adds to other signs of hope on this uh, drug remdesivir. Just last week, the New England Journal of Medicine reported the results of a small study uh, where compassionate use uh, program was uh, was implemented. This is where patients are given the drug when no other treatment is available. And they found that two-thirds of the group saw an improvement in their condition after taking the drug. So there absolutely is positive momentum building around Gilead's remdesivir. And that's what... We are seeing in the share price reaction after hours yesterday, Looking ahead in terms of the real data that is going to make a material difference, Gilead expects results from its clinical trials involving patients with severe cases to come through later this month. And then after that, in May, we are looking to get data in patients with moderate COVID-19. And lastly, just to put this into context, we are talking about a possible treatment for COVID-19. A treatment is not going to end the pandemic. It is going to serve as a bridge, a crucial bridge to a vaccine, which is not likely to come for another year to 18 months to possibly two years but very encouraging albeit anecdotal data out of Gilead. Karen?
1: Juliana, thank you. A fairly significant gap to bridge, though, in terms of restoring spirits in the consumer market. I want to get to to some of the car passenger sales numbers and what we have seen: uh, the passenger car sales tumbling by more than 50% across in Europe. The, the car registrations a very grim read this morning, dropping 51.8% to 853 odd thousand vehicles in the European Union, Britain and across the EFTA, that's the European Free Trade Association countries. The statistics, if you break them down by country, and of course, Italy, one of the first European countries to be hit hard by the pandemic, that showed a plunge of 85.4%. Registrations in Germany, which has been since one of the European countries that have handled the crisis in a slightly better fashion with the amount of testing and the ability of the healthcare system to meet the requirements around coronavirus, 37.7% 37.7% drop in Germany, 70, uh, 37.7% in Germany versus, say, 72.2% drop in France. That was a big dip. In Spain, 69.3% reversal. If you break it down by some of the big names, as we will watch the reaction on the market open today, Volkswagen uh, sales, they decreased 43.6% in March. Renault, and PSA Group, uh, those sales roughly in the 60 plus category, 63.7% down for Renault, 66.9% down for PSA Group. And uh, you've had numbers out of BMW too. You've seen uh, that company uh, a drop there of uh, 39.7% for Daimler, 40.6. So very, very negative numbers to weather. they weren't negative initially, but only single digit versus very large double digit declines in car registrations clocked up in March.